It is important that we understand what the Bible teaches us, not only about the qualifications for such an office, but the very nature of that office. And as we come to the New Testament, we find no formal description or definition of the office of elder, but instead we discover a number of word pictures that describe the relationship between elders and the people of, of God. And there are at least eight such word pictures in the New Testament, and so far we have looked at four of these word pictures. We have, and you can see the four listed at the top of your outlines. They are to be like the relationship of the people is to be like the relationship between elders and a clan or town. Elders, of course, look to for spiritual maturity. They are to be overseers over a workforce. They watch for the souls of those for whom they must give an account. They are like governors over a province. And the word, uh, those that rule over you, in Hebrews 13, we noted it is a word used commonly in, for, in, at that time for governor. Governor Pilate was one of them, and governors don't rule with their own arbitrary decisions, but they give account. And so it is with elders. And we saw that they also are as teachers with a group of learners. Now before we come to the next one or two of these uh, word pictures, let's pray for the help of God and his direction during this hour. We thank you and bless you, O Father, that you indeed have given to us your revelation in such a way that we can grasp it. You have communicated it almost like in baby language to us that we might understand it. And you've given us these word pictures that vividly describe what you would have for those that you would set as leaders in your church. And we pray that you would be pleased to quicken our hearts to pray for such. We pray that we who already are in such an office would more and more uh, fulfill the model that is set before us in these word pictures. And we pray that you would be pleased to guide us in coming days by men that you would raise up that would have these characteristics. Bless us with the power and the grace of the Holy Spirit, even now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Now, as we consider the nature of the office of elder, and later on as we examine the qualifications for the office, we must beware of running to one of two extremes. And we tend to go to extremes, and we need to beware of these two extremes. On one hand, we can treat these matters too lightly, as if God is just giving us some recommendations. And uh, this is kind of like the, the best case scenario, but maybe you don't have to have them quite so good as this. Uh, we can just take it too lightly. And if we think of what the Bible says about the nature of the office as just a recommendation, as just an ideal after which we strive, we run the risk then of installing a man that is not qualified for the office. But it can be equally catastrophic if we raise the bar higher than what is specified in Scripture. If we expect such perfection that no mortal could ever attain to such heights. And we need to remember the picture that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians that we saw in our studies some time ago. Uh, that our brother brought to us. In 2 Corinthians, how we are, as Paul puts it, to earthen vessels. We are jars of clay. He's speaking of ministers. 
and they, they are weak in this way and in that way. And all of this is that the power and the grace of God might be manifested through the weak, frail instruments that God has chosen. And in his book on the church, which is entitled The Bride, uh, Charles Swindoll reminds us of one such frail instrument. And I don't quote him because I recommend everything he's ever said, but he's a great illustrator. And uh, Chuck Swindoll, he tells us about one frail such servant of the Lord. Back in the Old Testament, we have a wonderful portrait of a man I'm going to call the senior pastor of the Wilderness Bible Church. His name is Moses. What an unusual minister. You would never have chosen him if you sat in on the candidating committee looking for the pastor of this unusual church. For starters, the place he will minister in is an unusual church because of its size about two million, give or take a few thousand. And furthermore, his background is questionable. He killed a man. And nor has this gentleman set many impressive records in the last 40 years of his life, which brings us to his age. He's now 80, not the ideal age for a man that must shepherd so many people with no staff and no building. For the last four decades, he has worked for his father-in-law, Jethro, leading sheep, which is about the only thing that we could point to that has remotely prepared him for this vast congregation. And did I mention his speech impediment? Along with old age and a bad resume working against him, the man stutters. Dear Moses, what a challenge. Well, this afternoon, we're going to look at one or two more of these word pictures of an elder And as we do so, therefore, and as we continue to study uh, this matter and further messages, we do well to remember that while every true pastor is depicted in these word pictures, we also must not expect them to be the super apostles that the Corinthians were idolizing and were seeking, and they were looking for men that were amazing in just every single way possible. God has chosen to use vessels of clay. Well, the picture that I want to especially stress this afternoon, and maybe we'll get to another one, is the picture of stewards over a household. Now the idea is very close to the idea of the overseer that we looked at earlier. You remember how the idea of the overseer, uh, he oversees a workforce, and pastors oversee the congregation, and the sphere of a steward, though, is not over a large or charge like that, but the picture is the picture of a steward over a household. And we begin with the reference to this matter in Titus chapter 1 and verse 7. And uh, I'm not going to have you turn to every single one of these texts, but as you, as you can, you can turn to them. But briefly, as Titus gives, or Paul gives instructions about the qualifications for an elder, he says an overseer must be blameless as a steward of God. And the word is oikonomos, which is put together of two words, oikia for house and namos for law. It's a house law, or a house ruler, in other words. And in ancient times, often a chief slave would be that house ruler. He superintended the household, even the whole property of the master. And he was essentially an estate manager. 
And in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 5, Paul pictures the church as God's household. As God's steward, the pastor has been chosen by God to be a manager as such, and he has been entrusted with the care of something very precious to God. He has been entrusted with the household of God. And this is a place where God manifests his special presence. And just even any estate owner, wealthy, wealthy man, and all of his thousands of acres perhaps that he owns, what's the most important part of it all? It's his house. That's where he lives. That's where he kicks his feet up. That's where he refreshes himself and so forth. It is the most precious part of all. And in the same way, this is precious to God, the house of God. And so it's a solemn trust to care for God's house. Now turn with me to Luke chapter 12 and verse 42. A steward is a servant, and in some places it's even connected with the idea of his being a slave. Now Jesus has just spoken of himself as a master who is away at a wedding. And some of the servants, they conduct themselves in such a way that they show that they're ready and they're waiting for the master to come back at any moment. While the other servants, he says, they're not careful to watch against the thieves that would break in. And they're not careful to watch for the master and be ready for when he would return. And then after giving this instruction, he says in verses 42 and 43, And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. And so the master, he makes him the ruler over the household. He manages the household while the master is gone. And here great stress is laid on the requirement of faithfulness. Who is that faithful and wise steward? And I want you to be thinking in a moment we're going to talk about faithfulness. And I want to get a little bit of an input from you as to what this means in practical terms in terms of a man that would be serving in the ministry and what faithfulness involves. And a stewardship is also to be used for the benefit of the household, as we read in that passage in Luke. He is to feed, he is to give each person its portion in due season, as it's been described there. And stewards, they were accountable also to their masters. He is a faithful and wise student, and the master will make ruler, and then he has to give an account. And so we read in Luke chapter 16, another picture of a steward. In this case, it's the unjust steward. And the unjust steward has mismanaged the funds of his master. He was accountable for the funds that were put into his charge. And the accusation came that he was wasting his master's goods, Luke 16, 1. And so the master says, what is this that I hear about you? Give account of your stewardship. And likewise, pastors must give an account. They are accountable to their master, even to God himself, who has given them the stewardship of the church in which they minister. Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, They watch for your souls as those who must give an account. Now turn with me, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. The Apostle Paul says in this context, 
Um, yeah, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 16 and 17. He says, if I preach the gospel, verse 16, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For it is if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. See what he's saying here. He says, I'm bound to preach the gospel. I don't have a choice here. God called me to it. Woe is me if I don't keep that charge. But if I do this reluctantly, I'm not going to get a reward, but I need to do it willingly and need to remember that I have been entrusted with a stewardship. And in this place, the stress is, is not so much on the souls of men, the souls of men in the household of God that he's accountable for, but he's entrusted for, with something else. He is entrusted with the gospel. And just as the souls of men are exceedingly precious to God, so is the gospel message by which, they are, by which they are to be saved. He has a stewardship not only for souls, but also for the message by which they will be saved and by which they will be, be built up. So Paul was concerned not to abuse his authority, therefore, in the gospel, verse 18. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, you can flip back to that passage. The gospel steward is entrusted not only with earthly treasures, but the treasure of the gospel is again stressed in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. He says, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. And so the steward in this passage he dispenses a saving message. It's described as the mysteries of God. He has the great privilege of pouring over the word of God and seeing in their mysteries, hidden from the people of the world, but revealed to us by the Holy Spirit in the word of God. And he's admitted, therefore, near to the presence of the Lord. The Lord opens his heart up unto him in confidence and through his word, he reveals sacred, wonderful things. And this is a sacred high honor to see these things and then proclaim these things. They have the high privilege of studying the scriptures hour after hour, peering into gospel realities that amaze even angels. And the chief requirement as they do this is faithfulness. They must faithfully dispense the mysteries of the gospel to the whole household of the faith, and they are accountable, therefore, to God for their rule and for their teaching. Now, here is what we as a church should be looking for in any man whom we would lay our hands on for the ministry, and here is what all elders should still be striving to be more and more as they have this standard of the stewardship set before them. Elders are stewards. Now, there are several particulars that are implied. And we've noted them, we've listed, I think, seven of them, something like that, in your notes. But the first thing is that they must be faithful. The most repeated thing in these passages is that the steward must be faithful. Now, I want to just ask, as you've had a little time to think about this, what does this imply? What does this involve, being a faithful steward? 
Yes, Tony. Okay, so there's things that a pastor has to do that are not always the thing you would look forward to doing. Nobody likes to lead the church in church discipline if it needs to be done. Nobody likes to reprove somebody. And there are things like that that uh, require trampling on self and remembering, well, I have to give an account here. This is what God has told me to do. Excellent observation. Yes, Bob. Yeah, so that, that kind of bends the nail over and expounds the whole issue of being a, a steward over the mysteries of the gospel, that he's to guard that gospel, to guard the sacred doctrines, lest they be corrupted. And, uh, yes, Mike. So he's like a, if he's a steward over the household, often back in those days, it involved, the household involved uh, animals in the care of ornery sheep as well as, as, as a cooperative one. You've got the bull that always breaks through the fence, you've got to build a better fence. You've got to uh, figure out ways to deal with each one according to their need. Yep. Yes, uh, Leo. people in the world that live in the very real possibility of having to pay the price of their own lives for uh, refusing to compromise their, their testimony, their confession of faith in Christ. Anything else? Yes, Rip.
isn't, uh, I think, an illustration of that failure to reflect the master is the parable of the talents, the, the guy that just buried it in a, in a napkin, and he says, you're really hard and severe, and, and so he wasn't reflecting the, I don't know if that's the best illustration, but I think, I think that's the principle there that, you're, that I think is really biblical. Anything else that anybody has here? Uh, let me just go over a couple things that I have in my notes here before we move on. This is the most basic issue here is faithfulness. But let me just emphasize that there needs to be faithfulness in his personal life. And it's not that the man is able to razzle and dazzle you with eloquence. He's an amazing talent. That's not the first qualification. He's first and foremost to be a faithful man. And how often a talented young man becomes the object of fawning flattery He's treated as if he's one of the gods that came down from heaven. And not long, it's not going to be long before uh, such a foolish expectation is going to be exchanged for bitter disappointment. The person that is admired so much is going to prove to be a disappointment. In one way or another, his lack of faithfulness comes out in his home, in his finances, his personal walk. So faithfulness and integrity, they go hand in hand. Integrity is doing the right thing when nobody is looking except for God. Remember Joseph. Joseph was a man that had integrity that he protected. And even when nobody was around except for Potiphar's wife, he refused to uh, comply with her advances. He was a man of integrity, even when God alone was looking on. And then faithfulness will also involve, and this was hinted at, I think, by one of you, it will involve preaching hard things. And it's, it's one thing in the church, you see, to denounce the Pope out there, denounce the liberals that are out there. There's no liberals in this house. There's no Pope, I think, that, that I can remember walking around in this room here. It's one thing to blast all those things that are out there, and it's another thing to hit the sins of the people that are right there listening to you as you preach. That's a harder thing to do. And you see, the man that's not faithful, he'll change, therefore, his message to please his hearers instead of to get under their skin and to approve them. Or, or perhaps he'll harp upon just one string because he knows he's going to get the amens from that. Uh, and yet he'll be silent on some issue that he knows is likely to get him out of favor with one of the cliques in the church. But he forgets that he's not to please men, but to please God. If he's seeking to please men, he's displeasing God. He must not shun to declare the whole counsel of God, as Paul puts it in Acts 20. Faithfulness also means meeting the spiritual needs of all the people. And uh, there needs to be individual shepherding and care, as, as, as Mike mentioned a little while ago. And uh, with the unfaithful man, because his heart is set, you see, upon his reputation, it's not the good of the house that's on his mind and his heart. And he's going to neglect, therefore, the needs of the household because he's always thinking about, well, I, I hope that people love that sermon. Well, that was a clever way of stating it. And he'll, that, that's what his heart is set upon rather than meeting the, the, the regular needs of God's people. Or because perhaps he loves ease, even though he, maybe though he finds it easy to visit the people and he can just go around and chat. He's a gabby type of a guy and that he likes that part of the job. 
And yet he finds his heart, it finds it hard to put his nose, you see, to the grindstone in the study. And his sermons, therefore, won't have very much substance to them. And so there needs to be the meeting of the spiritual needs of all the people, and faithfulness is required to do that. There needs to be faithfulness to the gospel and the truths of God's word, as, as Bob emphasized. Because the unfaithful man loves the praises of men, he readily embraces novelties. And then he passes on the latest fads on to his hearers. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 17, I have been entrusted with a stewardship and in executing a trust. If you have a trust, there's little scope for originality in a trust. You have to carry out the terms of the trust. You don't say, well, I'm going to kind of cross out a few zeros here and add some over here and change where the money's going to go. Or I want to put a, another clause in here. I want to take this clause out. No, you don't do that. You have it set forth as a trust. This is what God's word is. I didn't make this trust. I just have to execute it. I just have to preach it. The gospel needs no improvement. And so the faithful minister refuses to alter it in the least. Faithfulness also is in seeing the church through difficult times. In John 9, the hireling is said to run when he sees the wolf coming. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, the apostle Paul speaks of preaching in the latter times, at times when he needs to be ready in season, out of season, when people want they have itching ears, they want to hear more soothing things and more interesting things, and they turn away their ears from the truth. And he has to preach in season, out of season. He needs to be faithful in seeing the church through difficult times. Faithfulness also involves doing the work, year in and doing year, year in and doing, doing out. I remember Drew mentioning a uh, missionary to India. All of a sudden, I can't remember his name. Help me, help me somebody. Excuse me? Yes, William Carey, yes. Yeah, he's the plotter. He was famous for just plotting year in, year out. And uh, this is a, an essential part of being faithful. It's often the case that an unfaithful man, he grows weary of the ministry. And because he entered the ministry, because he liked people to praise his sermons, and he, first of all, because he, everything was new, and so he got these compliments when he first started preaching. And then the novelty wears off, and people are not complimenting his preaching very much. And he begins, therefore, to have less and less of a heart for the ministry, because he's not getting what he really wanted from the ministry, which is the praises of men. And so he will therefore not be faithful year in and year out in the work. So you see how important this qualification is of being a steward and therefore of being faithful. But then I also want to add that one who has a steward mentality is also very humble. And this is very much behind the hymn that we chose to sing right before uh, this sermon. Beware of a man with a swagger and such a man's eye, you see, is on the praises of man rather than the praises of his master. And some people think too much of us. Some people think too little of us. And it would be better if everybody soberly considered us, Paul says, as servants of Christ, 1 Corinthians 4.1. It'd be better to remember that we are stewards. And as stewards, it doesn't really matter what the other servants think. The only opinion that matters is the master's opinion. And that's why Paul stresses this in 1 Corinthians 4, 2 to 4. It is required in stewards that one be found faithful, but with me it is a very small thing that 
I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. You see, these Corinthians, they were all judging people. They were saying, okay, this is the better preacher. Paul, he's the best one. Some said, no, Peter, he's, he, he's, he's more fiery. And he's not so quite so philosophical or goring as Paul. And they all had their favorites, you see, and they all had their reasons. And they were, this, this was their idea of, of ministers. They were judgmental, therefore, in their assessment of those that weren't their favorites. And Paul says, it's nothing for me to be evaluated by you. What, what does it matter what you think? The only thing that matters is what the Lord thinks. And this is essential to humility. A man with this humble attitude will also be teachable. And even though he is willing to take an unpopular stand when he's convinced that obedience to the master requires it, in some senses he can sometimes be very unbending. He has to be. Yet he's also ready to admit when he's been wrong. One of the great faults of one of our recent presidents is just a complete unwillingness to ever recognize, ever that he did anything wrong, never, never admitting to it. And this kind of stubbornness is not a sign of good leadership. It's a sign of unbending pride. And sometimes the best thing for us is having to eat crow for something that we've said. Several years ago, one famous preacher, he related this. I often say, take God seriously, but don't take yourself too seriously. Laugh often. And don't be afraid even to laugh at things you've once said. I do that once a year. You see, tapes, this, you see this a little bit dated here. You see, tapes are made of all my messages, which is a sort of frightening thought to begin with. And at the end of the year, those who produce our tapes and do the work of putting them on the radio give me a cassette tape of all the things they took out during the year. It's a sort of Christmas gift. Some even have had the audacity to play this tape at a Christmas party for hundreds to hear and enjoy. I cannot believe some of the dumb things that I've said. It is enough to reduce one to the size of an ant. And so, obviously, this is an expression of humility, recognizing things that were not said in the best way. So, one that's a steward has a humble mentality. He's also, thirdly, self-denying in his approach. The faithful steward whose eye is on his master, he willingly selects even that part of the work that requires self-denial, the hard part of the work. And for some, it's studying the word, hour after hour. He's willing to spend hours seeking the true meaning of the text, even though maybe little of it disappears in his sermon. But he gives himself to that arduous work because he wants to be accurate in his interpretation of the passage. He trembles to mishandle the word of God. Or not only the hours of study, but the hours of prayer. Now who in the congregation sees him praying day by day? Who hears it? He has to be diligent and self-denying. As Adam Clark put it, kill yourself with work and then pray yourselves alive again. Good advice for pastors. Another feature that comes out in this matter being steward is that this requires a prayerful approach. The steward is not to say or, things, or do things that he thinks are best. That's not the issue. His one concern is carrying out the master's wishes. And therefore he has to be before the master's face 
and he needs God's help, you see, to see what the Bible says and to interpret what's needed in the congregation. He needs to be a man of spirituality. He needs to be a man of the, of the spirit given with given wisdom to see what's out there. And how can you be a faithful steward if you, if you never communicate with the master? You mustn't go to work without communicating with the master. He must be prayerful. And then a steward, fifthly, needs to be careful. A man with a steward mentality, he is constantly giving an account. He's not cocksure. He's always asking, am I preaching what my master wants me to preach? Am I giving emphasis to those doctrines most necessary right now? The things that the Lord, the master, wants to be in the forefront right now. Am I caring for the souls the way that he wants them cared for? Am I giving enough time in the day to prayer? Am I fulfilling my master's orders? You see, the steward is especially careful. He examines himself because he's speaking in behalf of the master. He gives an account to the master. And he speaks more carefully than if he's just speaking for himself. As one person, uh, one Puritan put it, when somebody says, your God is too, you're, you're, you're too precise. You're too particular about what you do. And he said, I serve a precise God. And that was his attitude. He needed to be careful, and he needed to, therefore, seek carefully to please the master. A sixth thing that comes out of this is that a steward is serious about his calling. The minister, he must not handle his duties in a trifling, careless way. We must be as serious as death in this work. As Charles Spurgeon put it, there are boys and girls who are always giggling, but who never laugh. And they are the very image of certain ever-jesting preachers. I like an honest laugh. True humor can be sanctified, and those who can stir men to smile can also move them to weep. But even this power has limits which the foolish soon exceed. And I particularly like that quote because Spurgeon had an immense gift for humor. I think he must have had to restrain himself in a tremendous way in his sermons, not to keep it coming out too much. And obviously there's humor even in the Bible, there's a place for it, but there is a death, a life and death seriousness, you see, to the calling of the minister. It's not ours to be clever and entertain and tickle ears and impress people with witty one-liners. We mustn't make cleverness our idol. We stand between heaven and hell. And therefore, as we think about the master someday coming to return and giving an account of his stewardship, what a solemn thing this is. This calls upon us just for seriousness. And then one last thing, the steward must be wise. The Lord says, who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? The steward must wisely anticipate future crises and needs. You think of a, a steward. He's maybe put there for a month before the master comes back. Okay, what are we going to need next week? Uh, what about this shipment that comes in? It takes two weeks to order this, and, and how do we plan ahead? He's, 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 he's wise, you see. And he has to anticipate, therefore, future needs. And he must bring forth both old things and new from the word of God. He must provide milk for the babes and meat for the men. 
and giving each his or her appropriate food in due season. But at some tables, I fear there are some that have to wait in the, in the line for, for a long time to hear something that really feeds their souls. Because the only thing that's being fed week after week is pablum. There's just no meat that's being ever served up. But at other tables, the only thing being served up is, 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 the, is meat for the theologues, the Calvin heads, so to speak. And it was said of Jesus that the common people heard him gladly. And so there's the need, you see, to serve, as one of those passages says, to give out the due portion in a wise way according to the needs of those that are, that are there. And the wise steward, he also knows how to deal with the truth proportionately. And it mustn't just always be doctrine every Sunday. Or it must not be just self-help stuff, the practical instruction. Let me give you a few hints here how to slay giants this sermon and then how to do this or that in the next sermon. And yet you don't get any meat of the word of God from it. He mustn't always be involved in controversies. And yet on the other hand, he needs to not shun controversy when the faithfulness demands taking the stand. He needs not to always be reproving people. And yet he needs not always to just, just pour on the sweetness and the comfort and so forth. He needs not to harp just on one string, you see, sermon after sermon. So that every sermon he preaches, people can know, well, I don't know he's going to get around to this or that. I, I don't see how it's going to come out of this passage, but sooner or later, out it comes. That's not to be his approach. The master servants will feel underserved if the only thing served at every meal is porridge, with the only difference is that some like it hot, some like it cold, and some like it in the pot nine days old. The true steward, he cares for the household. He seeks to provide for each one, you see, their appropriate portion in due season. And when a godly steward is reminded of these things, he cries out, who is sufficient for these things? Even after 43 years in the ministry, when I was writing this sermon, I confessed to feeling all over again, just absolutely overwhelmed at what this charge is and what it involves. So pray for your pastors. Pray for those that have been preaching for years, that they will more and more be the kind of stewards that they ought to be. And pray that God will fashion uh, stewards that will truly act as stewards in the household of God in, in the rising generation, that God will raise up such leaders in this place. Well, this is the fifth word picture, that of being stewards over a household. Well, I had hoped to get at least started with the sixth picture, but I think that we're going to stop at this point, and we will look next week, or the next sermon, Actually, I'm only preaching every other week. We're looking at two weeks, God willing, at the picture of his being a servant of God and of God's people. Another major category of thought. Let's pray for the grace and help of God. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you that you've given unto us these vivid word pictures in the Bible that describe what you would have for a man of God, what you would raise up and what you would do to fashion those that are already in office to be more and more uh, what you would have for them to be. And Lord, none of us is sufficient for these things. We all have weaknesses. We all have ways in which we have to work hard at, harder at this rather than that. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to remember that we will give a Solomon account. And we pray, O oh Lord, that as we think of this, that you would enable us to quicken our pace, that you would enable us to be more and more diligent, to enable us to be serious and wise and faithful and all of these things that we have seen in your word this afternoon.
And we pray, O Lord, that even as your people, maybe not those that are given this special stewardship of of the house of God and of the gospel in this formal sense, and yet all of us, Lord, we have a stewardship that's given to us. All of us have an accountability. All of us someday will give an account unto you. And we pray, Lord, that we would not be those that have to do so with great grief, but rather that we would be able to do so with joy, that we would be able to hear from your lips, Lord Jesus, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.